We're looking at Matthew chapter 1 this morning, and we're going to begin reading in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. While his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. As we look at this, he gives two different names for Jesus. Emmanuel, which he gives the translation of it then. Emmanuel means God with us. The other name is just the name Jesus. The reason that we're starting with this passage here this morning is because his name is shared very similar with the name Joshua. Both names mean the same thing. They mean Jehovah saves. We're seeing Jesus through the Old Testament. If you'll remember Jesus and talking to the disciples, he said that all the scriptures had pointed to him. He talked about the law and the prophets or the teaching of Moses and the, and the prophets and the Psalms. And then we broke it down a little bit further. And that's the section we're looking at here today, which is the history books. In the Bible, the history books take off with, from the end of the writing of books of Moses. They start with Joshua coming in and, con- and getting conquest over the promised land. Uh, the time when they were ruled by judges is also in the history books. The time when the kingdom began. And then the, they would have the monarchs. And then the divided kingdom, when Israel is divided into Israel and Judah. And then the uh, captivities as they'd be carried off, each individually captive, to different places. And then, finally, their return. And that's what we're looking through today here, is we're going to find Jesus in the history books. Now, there's a couple different methods that are used for revealing him. The first method that it uses within here is what we call theophanies. Now, those actually were in the writings of Moses, too, but we just haven't got around to pointing them out yet. The word theos means God. The word theophany means an appearance of God. When you see in the Old Testament, you're reading along, and it says, and the angel of the Lord does this. That is often a theophany. We would have seen one in the Passover. When you look at the Passover, it says that the angel would come through Egypt to destroy the firstborn, and it also would say God would come through destroy the firstborn. Well, is it an angel or is it God? Well, that's probably a theophany is where it says it's the angel of the Lord and it starts talking to you, but then partway through the conversation it kind of changes and it's talking to you just as if it's God himself, which an angel would not take that onto himself. And so we see that like with the burning bush. It's an angel of the Lord that Moses is talking to at the burning of bush, but then farther along in the conversation you see it's very clearly God that's talking to him. Um, same thing with Abraham when he goes up to sacrifice Isaac. In chapter 2 of the book of Judges, God introduces himself as the angel of the Lord, and pretty soon it becomes very clear that it's God himself. Who is this angel of the Lord? We think that it's, it's probably Christ before his physical life on this earth. You see a lot of pictures of Christ in the Old Testament through these theophanies. Now, a second way is one that it's a method that we've already been looking at, and that is through type. 
Type means this is typical of, or this is a type of, which we've talked about how the ark was a type of Christ because it was provided the salvation. The Passover lamb is a type of Christ. And we know that one clearly is because the New Testament says Christ our Passover. The manna that they were fed in the wilderness or the water that they drank from the rock in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says that was Christ. Jesus himself would say that he was the true bread that came down from heaven. And so those are types. Well, as we continue to look through the Old Testament, there are a lot of types. As you sit down and look at the plot line of the Bible, there is a big story to the Bible. It's an amazing book, over you know, 66 different books of the Bible, over 40 authors, three continents, three languages, 1,500-year time period that it was written in, and it all fits together like one book. And it tells a story. Within the big story of the Bible, there are a lot of little stories. And through those little stories, we can learn a moral code. We can learn the difference between right and wrong. In fact, the Bible points out that part of the reason for it is for those lessons that we learn. If we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Now, did you notice that? We must not put Christ to the test during the time of the serpents. Remember, remember that whole thing about the Son of Man will be lifted up in the wilderness? He's pointing to him way back here. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So a lot of the things that are written down in the Old Testament, we are expected to get moral instruction from and guidance as to what's right and wrong in our lives. At the same time, there's this overarching story of salvation that God is giving to us in the Old Testament. And all the little parts of the story tend to reflect the bigger part. Even the list of the law and what we should do and what we shouldn't do morally points us to Christ, as we've already talked about, because it shows us our need for a Savior. It shows us our failure before God. It says one person said one time, it says the Bible is like the straight edge that shows us how crooked we are because it points us then to the Savior. So many of the details of the Bible draw a vivid picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what a type is. A type is something that's a clear picture back in the Old Testament that points to the future fulfillment of that in Jesus Christ. And so when we looked at the priesthood, and the temple and the sacrifices, that was all a picture, a type of Christ. All right, so now let's go through the history books then. As we go through the history books, we're going to skim through a little bit and see some of these pictures of Christ throughout the Old Testament. And they are plentiful. As we go through, first, the first thing we see is the conquest. And this is the time with Joshua. Joshua is a leader, as we've already pointed out. His name means the same thing as Jesus' name. Yahweh saves. Jehovah saves. He's, he, he also is a picture of Christ. He's leading God's people into the promised land. 
There's some interesting things about Joshua that stand out as similar with Christ. He follows Moses. He's kind of the successor to Moses. Well, in a sense, Jesus Christ also kind of followed Moses. Because remember, Moses told us back in Deuteronomy, he said that there would be another prophet that would rise up like me. To him you will listen to. The Bible tells us in John chapter 1, verse 17, it says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses spoke of me, Jesus said, and he came and fulfilled it. And then also we look at their beginnings. With the children of Israel, Joshua leads them up to the Jordan River. He has the priests that are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, which is Israel's most prized possession. They have to come up to the Jordan River and step into the water before God will part the waters. Then God parts the water and they come across on dry land. In Joshua chapter 3, in verse 7, the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. You know, because any time you go through a change in leadership, it's difficult. Moses has led the children of Israel around for 40 years. They're used to Moses. Moses is a tough act to follow. He's the guy that brought them the man in the wilderness. Remember, even in Jesus' time, they were still looking back saying, Moses brought us the man in the wilderness. Got him the water from the rock. Of course, it's God doing all these things, but Moses would be a difficult person to follow. But Joshua, every time he did anything wrong, Moses wouldn't have done it that way. But So what does God do? He brings him up and he parts the Jordan River, just like he parted the Red Sea for Moses. Now he's going to part the Jordan River for Joshua, and that's going to cement them in. Okay, we're with Joshua. We're all right with Joshua now. The interesting thing is, it's the same river that Christ is going to start his public ministry in. Right? He's going to stand in the Jordan, and John the Baptist is going to baptize him reluctantly, And God is going to audibly say, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so God would exalt Jesus Christ in the same river that He exalted Joshua in at the beginning of Joshua's ministry as well. And then Joshua leads them in. They're they're taking over the promised land. Jesus provides deliverance for us. He brings us into the promised land. He brings us into eternal life. Joshua is just a little picture of the reality that is in Jesus Christ. We move on from the conquest stage and we get into the judges. This time period of the judges covers about 300 years. It's a very, very dark time period in Israel's history. Israel keeps cycling through this cycle of sin. Right toward the beginning of Judges, it tells you about the cycle, and then you just watch it roll. There's like a wheel rolling down the road. You just watch it roll through the rest of the book. Israel in the Promised Land having conquest, having victory. Life is getting good. They're in homes. They have wells. They have fields and orchards. And and they're dwelling in the land of milk and honey. And they compromise. And they don't push out the enemies of God all the way. And pretty soon, they're kind of going with the enemies of God. They're worshiping their gods. And they're falling away from God. And they're committing idolatry. And what does God do? Then He gives them over. So they enter into a a cycle of sin, and then their sin brings them into servitude because God gives them over to their enemies, and their enemies come in and beat up on them and basically make servants and slaves out of them. And then Israel, to keep it all S's, makes it easier to remember supplication. Israel cries out to God, says, please deliver us. They repent of their sins, and God sends a Savior. He sends a deliverer, a judge. And so the judge comes in and delivers them from their enemies. And they follow the judge during his lifetime. And then the judge dies. And then Israel falls back into sin, back into servitude, cries out to God again. And then God sends another deliverer and he delivers them again. But for some reason, without that deliverer there, they cannot stay out of sin. They keep falling back into sin. Even the judges themselves are not always overly reputable characters. 
If you look through the list of judges, you got Barak, who will lean on Deborah. He won't go off into battle without Deborah. You know, that's kind of cowardly. Gideon seems to be very prone to doubt. He always wants God to give him a sign to prove everything. And then Samson. Samson, here's this guy with these amazing deliverances, these amazing victory over the Philistines. But you've got to look awful hard to find one character trait you'd like to see modeled in your son. One of them, there might have been some better things about him that we don't know, but as far as we can tell, the biggest claim to fame was he is left-handed. You know, the, when you look at that time period of the judges, he delivers his people. I think if you put it in a nutshell, that's it. God delivers his people. He does it by many or by few. If you look at the time of Barak, he does it through the leading of an army. Dealing with Gideon, God says the army's too much. I, I don't I want you to know it's from me. So he has them weed down thousands of soldiers down to 300. Now we're ready. And then people like Samson, where, he de- where God would provide victory with just one person that he would give amazing strength to. But the point is, he delivers his people. Now, there's also something else I think that happens through here as well. And I, I, I have a little bit of a difficult time getting my mind around it. And that's because at the time of the judges, you get this deliverance from God through these judges that he raised up, as it says in chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. But you know what? There's just something through the whole process, through the whole time period, and especially when you get up to the end, that is very lacking. And I think it's got to be for either one of two reasons. Either one, we don't have the right judge, right? What we need is Jesus Christ. All these people are just men. They're just, they're just people. And so they're going to fail. They're going to let us down. Even Moses hit the rock when he wasn't supposed to as a leader of Israel. And so we've got to have the right judge. But another thing I'm wrestling, and my son Daniel and I were talking about a couple weeks ago when he was up, was this idea of a king. And Dan expressed to me, he said, you know what I think judges is about? He says, I think judges is showing us that we need a king. But there, and, 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 I see, and I see that point. We need the King of kings and the Lord of lords, what Jesus is going to be. We need the one that's going to sit on his father's throne, David's throne, which we'll get to him in a little bit. But at the same time, there's a problem. There's a, a struggle, a hurdle to overcome. Because when you get to Samuel, Samuel's the last judge. Samuel's kids, Samuel appoints as judges as Samuel gets old. And Samuel's kids are worthless. They don't follow Samuel's ways. They take bribes, they distort justice, and the nation of Israel says, we don't want this anymore. We're tired of this. It's been 300 years of this. And as Dan and I were talking about, this part of the purpose of this to show them that they need a king. But the problem with it is when they say, we want a king, their motivation is wrong, for starters. They say, we want a king like the nations around us. And so they're following the wrong model. And then the second thing is, God tells Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. So by their want for this new king, they're rejecting God as their king. And that's basically what the setup was supposed to be, that they would follow God. God would be their king. God is their ruler. But they kept following, they kept wandering away from him. So he would send a judge to deliver them. But at the same time, if you go back, if you go back earlier in the book of Deuteronomy, God promises them, or he tells them, when you get into your land, you're going to want a king like the other nations. And he tells them, and you can have one. Now, see, their motivation's still wrong. Their motivation is still the other nations. And then God begins to give them laws or rules. Okay, if you're going to have a king, then this is what he should be. He shouldn't be somebody that follows bribes. He shouldn't be somebody that pursues money. Can't get rich while you're in there being a king. He had to write out his own copy of the Word of God so that he could read it every day so he could know how to govern God's people. 
And so there were these rules they put in place for how he would govern God's people. And so a part of you says, now wait a minute, now why is God doing that? Is God leading them to the point where they're going to have a king also pointing to Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is pointed to through the deliverers, through the saviors, the judges. He's pointed to also through the kingdom. So why would God tell him ahead of time if he didn't want him to have a king? Why did he tell him ahead of time that you're going to get up here and you're going to want a king and you can have one? Just make sure he's a good king. I'm going to pick him and he's going to do these things. Or does God just know that that's what they're going to insist on? And so he makes allowances for it, still using it to point toward Christ. At any rate, whatever he's doing, he's using it to point toward Christ. But during this time of judges, we have these, we have these judges that give us a picture of Christ. Not in their care. They come in and deliver God's people You know, another picture that we have during that same time period of the judges is in the book of Ruth. Within the book of Ruth, you have this this woman that is married and her husband dies. Her sister-in-law's husband dies also. So the two brothers die and the father dies in this one family. Naomi, the mother or mother-in-law, tells the two girls, go back to your people and find a new husband. You're young. You got your whole life ahead of you. I got nothing. The other one goes back. Ruth says, no way. I'm going with you. Your people will be my people. Your God is my God. And she goes back with Naomi, back to the land of Israel. And when we get there, we, there's this thing called the kinsman redeemer. It's kind of a weird little custom. When a man died and his wife doesn't have any kids, then his brother is supposed to marry his wife. This is in Israel, not us, all you teenagers that are getting nervous. His brother is supposed to marry her and raise up children for his brother, in his brother's name, so that his brother's name does not vanish. And it was, it was kind of an interesting custom because it was dishonorable to say no. In fact, the custom was if you go up to him and you tell him, you've you got to redeem her, redeem your brother's name, and he says, no, I don't want to because it will mess up my own name, it will mess up my own inheritance, my own family situation, I don't want to do it, then you know what you had to do? You had to take the shoe off of the guy, spit in his face, and from that day forward, that guy is known around town as the guy with the loose shoe, the guy with the shoe loosed. It's a quirky, a really weird kind of a custom, from our point of view anyway. In fact, I can hardly think of a point of view that it wouldn't be weird. But but when you look at what happened here, Ruth comes home with Naomi back to the land, and they're very poor, so she goes to the welfare system. The welfare system in Israel, you had to get up and do something to receive it. The people that owned the fields could not harvest the very edge of the field. If they drop something while they're harvesting, they can't pick it up. It's left there for the poor people to come by so that they're not destitute. Ruth goes out into this field and starts gleaning, picking up those things that were dropped and along the edge. And Boaz sees her and takes a shining to her. It's his field. And he tells his servants, hey, drop a little more by her. And she goes home with all this stuff. And Naomi's like, where in the world did you get all that? And she said, I went to this guy's field, Boaz. And they were good to me. They were nice. She says, you know what? Boaz is in our family. He's in our line. Kinsman redeemer thing. Go back to Boaz. And so, and make a long story short, that's my mom's favorite line. She uh, goes presents herself to Boaz, and Boaz wants to redeem her. But the problem is there's somebody that's a closer relative than he is. So that guy has first chance at it. And so Boaz goes to that guy and says, Naomi's back. She's got Ruth with her, and it's up to you to redeem her. I need to know if you want to redeem her or not, because if, if you don't redeem her, then it falls to me which he really wants to happen. And this guy is like, okay, I'll redeem her. And then he tells him what comes with her, a little bit of, let's say, debt. And the guy says, ah, uh, never mind. I don't, I, don't, I, don't want to, I don't want to do that. That'll upset my apple cart too much. And so 
Boaz plucks the guy's shoe off. Now, I don't, Boaz wants this to happen, so I think he probably avoided the spit in the face thing because it doesn't say that he did it. But he plucks the guy's shoe off, and the deal's done. And he gets to go redeem Ruth for himself and raise up children to her. And she's in the lineage of Christ then, because this is Christ's family tree that we're looking at right here. And so we look at this whole thing. There's a story of redemption. That death wasn't the end of it. It's not over. You will, your name will continue. There's redemption that's taking place here. And you know what? Interesting thing. People come to John the Baptist. John the Baptist is out proclaiming the Messiah's coming. And people come up to John the Baptist and they say, tell us who you are. Are you the Christ? And he says, no, I'm not the Christ. He says, who are you? I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He says, there's one coming after me whose shoe I'm not worthy to unloose. I think he's pointing back to Ruth right there. I don't just think he's saying, I'm so low, I'm not fit to tie his shoes. He's saying, I think he's saying, I'm not the Redeemer. The Redeemer's right behind me. He's coming. I can't lose his shoe. I can't take his place as Redeemer. That redemption, that kinsman Redeemer thing in the book of Ruth is a picture of the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. Well, then we go into the kingdom stage. In the kingdom stage, so they get done with the judges and they say, you know what, we're done with the judges, we want a king. And God gives them a king. He gives them Saul to start with. Saul started out good, seemed like a, a, a good king at the beginning. He was a humble guy hiding in the luggage when they wanted to appoint him as king. But then he very quickly became proud and did not do well. So then God says the next one is going to be a man after my own heart. And that's probably the easiest place in all the kingdom stage to see Christ pictured as in David. David is definitely an, an analogy. He's a picture of Jesus Christ for us. So much so that the, we have the Davidic covenant. God gives David a covenant. It will be one of your descendants that sits on the throne forever. So just as he had a promise, the covenant to Abraham, that it would be one of his descendants that would bless the world, now it's get honed down to the family of David. That Messiah is coming through you. But as, as we think of this kingdom age, there's, there's so many of the little stories within the time that picture Christ. For example, a really obvious one that was pointed out to me during this week, there's something that I was listening to, is David in his encounter with Goliath. But for some reason, you know what we do? We tend to get caught up in the moral attributes that we learn from different things. And sometimes we miss the greater story. Within David and, and Goliath, in fact, I'm going to just ask you, I'm going to put it out to you, anybody can answer it. Uh, um, what, is the, what is the moral of the story with David and Goliath? How does it apply to my life? What do you think? All he needs is a slingshot. All he needs is a slingshot? <laughs> a little faith along with it? God can do anything. God can do anything. All he needs is a slingshot. All he needs is faith. You trust. And that's, you know, usually the way, and I've taught it that way before too, and I won't stop teaching it that way, although I won't teach it that way only or exclusively, because here's the deal. What do we learn from David with that? David goes up against the giant. He's not afraid of the giant because of his faith in God. He goes out and he conquers the giant because of his faith in God. And that's usually how we think about it, and it's usually how we're taught to think about it. And it's not a wrong perspective because we do learn things from our heroes of the faith of the Old Testament as we look through these stories. I think it's right to learn those things from David because the Bible in Hebrews chapter 11 points back at David as an example of faith. So the faith that he exercised as he conquered Goliath is something that we should learn from in handling the battles and the giants in our life. However, I think that that point in the story is actually, I think it's secondary. I don't think it's the primary meaning of that story. Because follow this, the nation of Israel is overlooking the valley 
and their enemy is on the other side. And Goliath, the chief of their enemy, or at least the biggest one that they want to send out to fight, Goliath comes down into the valley and challenges them to fight. He send me one person instead of both armies fighting it out. One man come and fight it out. And whoever wins, wins for the whole nation. David is just a shepherd boy gets sent to take food to his brothers out on the front. And David, as any young boy, would be curious about the battle. And the fact that's what his brothers accuse him of. David gets up there just in time to see Goliath come down and challenge them. And the whole nation of Israel is afraid. And David's not afraid. And David goes down there. Now, think about it. In the story, what does not happen in the story, what does not happen is all of Israel is not encouraged to overcome the giant in their life and everybody go down and fight. That's not what happens. What happens is one unexpected person goes down and stands for the nation. And the whole nation is delivered because of this one deliverer that nobody saw coming. He steps in and he fights the battle, risks his life, and overcomes the enemy of the people of God. Isn't that so much more a picture of Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ who doesn't risk his life, he lays down his life. One person out there for the nation. One person redeeming the masses. Not the masses learning how to conquer their own giants, but the one deliverer taking down the giant for everybody else. Now, David, as I said, David's faith, we're to learn from that too. But I think that's secondary. I think the primary thing that we see happening in David and Goliath is one representative of the nation took out the giant. And in Jesus, we see one representative of mankind took out the enemy. And what is the final enemy that is to be defeated? Death. I think that, you know, most of the times when I think of that story, I picture me as him going to the battle. But actually, more accurately in that story, I'm one of the ones on the hilltop needing him to go there for me. The very first point to be taken out of that passage is that Jesus Christ has taken out your giant for you. He's overcome. He is victorious. David and Goliath isn't so much so we can be victorious as so that we can have our victory in Christ. He accomplished it on our behalf. And so as we read through the kingdom things, and we don't have time to go into many more of them, but that's just one example. One example of how the little stories within inside the big story mirror the big story. They're just, just still pointing to Jesus Christ. Then we also go into the, into the captivities when Israel sins and then they're taken off captive. What do we see? We see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now it's in one of the books of the prophets, so I was hesitant to use it, but it's just such a clear picture. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego won't bow to the idol. They won't worship any god but God, and so they get thrown into the fiery furnace. And the king goes over there and looks in the fiery furnace, and he says, didn't we throw three people in there? But I see four of them, and one of them is like the son of, the son of God. And so we see Jesus with them in their captivity in going through their suffering. And then also we see it in the return. In the return we see guys like like Ezra and Nehemiah come back. And we see Christ in this because the first thing that they do when they get back to the promised land, they rebuild the temple and they rebuild the wall around the city for protection for the people of the city and the temple. And so in other words, they put back in place that that system of worship that Christ is the central picture of the entire thing. And so the first thing that they're in a hurry to do is to reestablish. They reestablish the priesthood. They cleanse out the storage rooms. But we also see a couple of pictures of Jesus in those individuals as well. You know what? Both Ezra and Nehemiah have points in their ministry where they're weeping over the city of Jerusalem. And you know what? We can see a time in Jesus' ministry also where he weeps 
over the city of Jerusalem. We also see that in Nehemiah's time, there's a real cleansing of the temple. Nehemiah at one time goes in there and finds these people that were actually enemies of God's people, but because they had a family connection to a couple people on the inside, they actually were able to even move right into the temple area. Nehemiah goes in there and he's throwing their stuff out of the temple. <laughs> you guys get out of here. These storerooms are for tithes. These storerooms are for the priests. And he throws all their stuff out in the street and cleanses them, clears, clears that temple right out. Jesus would do the same thing. Jesus would come and he would find the temple used for selling animals and for exchanging money. And he would flip over those money tables and he would do some reeds and make a whip and drive people and animals right out of that temple area. Because he's saying, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. You know, all through the Old Testament, and these history books included, we see pictures of Jesus Christ. The, the small picture is part of the big picture. And that's exactly why it's in the Bible, because it mirrors the big picture, which is Christ delivering his people.